How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Water covers 70% of the Earth, and yet we know less about the depths of our oceans than some faraway planets. What stresses are human activities putting on the seas? How is climate change impacting marine ecosystems? Ted Danson is best known as a television and film actor, and he's here today to talk about his life as an advocate for the world's oceans. He co-founded Oceana, a conservation organization, and is author of a new book titled Oceana. In the next hour, we'll talk about ocean stewardship with Ted Danson and our live audience here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Please welcome Ted Danson. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Let's begin in the beginning. Um, What actually prompted you as a youth to become conscious about the oceans and, and put you on the path to becoming an advocate for the world's oceans? Uh, as a youth, I'd have to say I was pretty unconscious about <laughs> everything except you know what I could play with at that moment. Um, but I did I did grow up, and I, I see somebody here, Ed Norton's here today, who uh, actually knows exactly where I grew up because uh, Grand Canyon Trust is something that uh, took over the building that I grew up in. I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. My father was a director, an archaeologist, anthropologist, teacher. He was Dr. Danson, taught down at the University of Arizona, and then in about 56 became the director of the museum and the research center. And there pretty much wasn't a a summer in that house that didn't go by with, I think we counted one summer, five family dinners where it was just the family, the four of us. We were surrounded by scientists from all over the world. Um, And I was off playing with my Hopi friends, and it all went over my head. But basically, I think what I picked up was that there uh, is a lot that has come before us, and I, you know, was around the digs and digging up. No, I didn't get to dig up the skulls. As soon as they, I found a bone, I was thrown out, and the, you know, the scientists came in. But I was around skeletons and things like that at an early age, and I think it sunk in that there's a lot that has come before us, there's a lot that will come after us, and that this time that we're here is not just about us, it's about our stewardship. So that kind of sunk in. Flash forward, sorry. Yeah. You want to jump in? No, here? no, flash forward. Flash forward to uh, Cheers, um, mid-80s. I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'm a little guilty. What do I do? How do I be responsible? Um, I also take a walk on the beach in Santa Monica with my daughters, who are about eight and four, and uh, that, the sign, you know, no swimming, water polluted. How do you explain to that? I didn't know. It was a gorgeous day. It was beautiful. Crystal clear water. Um, couldn't go swimming. Started to answer, ask some questions. At the same time, I met a man named Robert Sulnick, who was the head of No Oil, Inc., who was, uh, they were trying to defeat Occidental Petroleum from digging about 60 oil wells right into Will Rogers State Beach, the Santa Monica Bay. And we came up with a way to defeat them. We were became great friends. We wanted to continue the conversation uh, naively, almost like my father has a barn, let's put on a play. 
we decided to start American Oceans Campaign. And we did. And lo and behold, it turned into a really uh, small but respected uh, ocean advocacy group in Washington and L.A. that then, 10 years ago, merged into Oceana, which is now the largest single-issue marine conservation group in the world. Uh, I'm on the board of directors, and this is what I do. I'm the actor who stands, I'm the shill in front of the tent <laughs> who says, thank you for watching Cheers. Uh, there better be at least one Cheers question. I just, um, thank you for watching Cheers. Please come into the tent and let me introduce you to this incredible marine biologist I'm standing next to because stuff's happening that you should know about. And that's the book. It's me standing in front of the tent introducing you to all of the people I've met over the last 25 years. The surfers, the chefs, the marine biologists, the policy people, the lawyers, the oil men, the, you know, everybody I could think of to let you know what's going on, what you can do about it personally, and know that there's hope. That's my spiel. Sorry. Thank you for letting, <laughs> me, letting me... Keep going. Let it roll. Yeah. All right. One, one last thing. The, the, the splashy headline is, some scientists believe, some scientists disagree, some scientists uh, believe that we have about, I don't know, you know, until 2060 or something like that. The unscientific part is picking a date. But no one disagrees that we're headed in the direction where we could conceivably, commercially, fish out our oceans. No more fish. Jellyfish soup. Literally. Uh, if we do not stop uh, fishing destructively and wastefully, and we'll get into all of that. But that's kind of the splashy headline, and because I'm an actor, I can say it. But the science, you will see, backs up that thought. That's the way we're trending. We'll get, definitely get to overfishing, but some people say that, that climate change is actually a bigger threat to, to oceans uh, than, than, than overfishing. Oh, you're just saying that. Because the, I'm here at Climate One. Yes, we have to believe that. But um, let's talk about the human impacts, the, the acidification, you know, the, the warming right. oceans. What does that do, do to the climate? And also, perhaps uh, oceans can be part of climate solutions, marine energy and those sorts of things. Right. Um, let me just go back hair to say that we, and when I say we, it's Oceana, the organization, uh, focuses on fisheries. As far as the ocean goes, that is the most pressing problem. So when you talk about climate change and acidification, it is the impact it will have on fisheries, which is huge. Um, because we're overfishing the top, and we'll get into that. We're overfishing the top of the food chain. When we have this conversation about climate chain and ocean acidification, then you're attacking the bottom of the food chain, and you can see how you could actually squeeze the life out of the oceans. Ocean acidification, you probably know as much as I do about it, but it's, it's basically one of those things that's not arguable. In the, you know, we love to debate whether climate change is real in this country. This is one of those things that is pure, simple fact, science. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've put about 30% more carbon dioxide into the oceans than before. Um, and the problem with that is uh, the carbon dioxide changes at this amount the pH balance of the oceans so that the oceans turn ever so slightly acidic, which means the, the pteropods, the sea snails, the corals that use calcium to make their shells, the calcium will not bind together because of the acidity, 
And so then you start to have a you know, big problem as you're starting to hit the bottom of the food chain. That's the biggest problem. And could, what about marine energy? You're an ocean conservationist. Are you right. against using the sea as a source of energy, whether it's underwater turbines or, or wind turbines that are off the, the coast of Martha's Vineyard or elsewhere? You would have to bring up my, my, my view, wouldn't you? Uh, no, I'm not. You know, clearly no one wants to... Everyone's nostalgic for the, the view that they had when they was a kid or when you first bought your home. But I would far rather see a windmill in front of me, an ocean windmill, than I would uh, an oil well or have to deal with this continued uh, oil policy that it creates so many problems. It's wonderfully ironic that for, by and large, most of the oil wells were placed in poor neighborhoods because the, you know, they didn't have the wherewithal to fight them. I, I started by fighting an oil well in my backyard, you know, because I had the time and the money and the da-da-da. Now, <laughs> it's us that can afford the ocean view that is going to have to go, you know, because all of the... Uh, New technology, wind, wind. The East Coast is where you would want a lot of your, uh, your windmills. And uh, we are facing that, you know, in Nantucket Sound. But uh, absolutely, absolutely, we should be doing everything possible. Wind power, solar, we should be pouring money into research and development to find out stuff we don't even know before we allow ourselves to continue to drill offshore and put our fisheries, our jobs, our tourism uh, in jeopardy. So should there be no offshore drilling, or should it just be done more safely and specific, not in sensitive areas? Uh, my position, not everybody's by far, even in the environmental community, is no more offshore drilling, period. No more new. No more new. No more new. Clearly, you're not going to take the rigs out of the Gulf. Uh, but you don't open up the Arctic Sea. You don't, you, don't, you know... Uh, I had this amazing, we both had, have had Alaska and Barrow, and I got to have an interview with uh, Mayor Itta of Barrow, and he is uh, in the middle of this fight because 20, I think he said like 12 years ago, he got his first indoor bathroom, and he got it because of oil money, because of the tax that they levy on the oil going through their land. Um, it is, Barrow's tough. I mean, that is really subsistence living. And all of a sudden, his people were able to have a life that, you know, we consider, you know, we take for granted because of oil money. Mm-hmm. And yet their entire culture, their entire... I'm sorry, I no. feel rude sometimes No, this I'm is great. This. No, this is the but audience. Thank yeah. you. The, um, their entire culture is based on whaling. Their spiritual right. back heritage is based on whaling. And if you sink an oil well in, the, in their sea... Uh, you run the risk with a spill or uh, other unforeseen accidents happening that his entire, you know, while he's trying to lift up his people, he could literally destroy them by allowing offshore oil drills in, in his area. So it's a, it's but an do amazing. Do the people see position. that? Because I've, I've been up there and seen these villages where they'd like to have a little better comfort of living, and oil can, or gas can, can bring that. Do, they, yeah. do, do people see those risks, or they just see the, the money in front of them that might improve their material well-being? It's really hard. It's wonderfully humbling. This is easy to say no more offshore oil drilling to you guys. Really easy. Go to Louisiana. Go to Texas. Go to Alaska and say no more oil drilling. 
You're saying, oh, so I should not put food on my table. I should not put my kids through college so that, you know, you can be right about no option. It's very humbling. It's very hard when you're talking about uh, people's livelihoods. They, I think what Mayor Itta's position is uh, you have to let science lead the way. And he means that genuinely. And if you do let science lead the way in common sense, you're not going to sink an oil well there. I mean, look what happened in the Gulf. Accidents do happen. In the Gulf, it was temperate, and you had all of the response team there. You know, the best response in the world was there. And look what happened. Try doing that in that climate in the Arctic. It would be crazy. It would be insane. We're also fortunate that the Gulf of Mexico, relatively speaking, has, doesn't have as rich uh, marine life as, as some other oceans. And so there was yeah, less, less... Especially uh, the Arctic. That's yeah. precious. Uh, let's talk about overfishing. Uh, you, you mentioned that. What are some of the big drivers? Uh, the, the, as India and China and, and, and emerging economies grow, the, the appetite for animal protein is growing. Fish consumption right. is up. So let's talk about the drivers behind the overfishing. Okay. Um, I, I always like to... I mean. The truth is, there's a moral argument that we don't get to do to fish what we did to, um, to buffalo. You know, there's a moral, spiritual, higher place that you can have this entire conversation about being stewards of what we've been given. But it's a tough climate to talk, about, talk that way about it. So I talk about jobs in the economy uh, because it's true. You do the right thing for the oceans, for the fisheries, you create more jobs you create an economy that will last and not disappear. So uh, how do I get into this? Okay, Um, we're being wasteful and we're being destructive. For example, uh, first off, 90% of the workforce, 90% of the fishermen in the world do it the artisanal, old-fashioned way that has been working for centuries. 90% and they catch 10% of the fish. 10% 10% of the workforce works on those huge international deep-sea trawlers, and they catch 90% of the fish. So just talking about jobs, and you know, immediately you do the right thing, you create way more jobs. These trawlers trawl the size of the, twice the size of the United States every year. And the problem is that they had these huge, huge nets. The mouth of them could fit a 747 into them, some of them. And... They used to have to lift the nets when it came to rocks, nooks, crannies, and corals because it would tear the nets. Not anymore. It's so sophisticated they can roll along the bottom with these huge heavy rollers and metal plates and they churn up what's there and they catch it in their nets. They can take a coral reef. They can take rocks, nooks, and crannies, which are the nurseries where the little fish become the big fish that we like to eat and turn it into a gravel pit. And if this gets weird and scary, I'm sorry, or boring, I am so sorry. <laughs> I can spruce it up a little. In You're a young boy um, in, the, in the audience. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I said something. Uh, I won't even go there. Never mind. Um, uh, so so you, you attack the nurseries at that level, you will have an impact. Uh, uh, you know, if you kill the nurseries, you have an impact on fish production. Um, and then the nets come up on board and it's a third of what the world catches is thrown overboard, dead or dying, because it's not the fish they're after. So there's a huge amount of waste and a huge amount of destruction. Because the fleets are so overly subsidized, 
Um, how, are they, how are they subsidized? This country, by the way, doesn't do this. And so you get Democrats and Republicans all agreeing, which is wonderful, um, that uh, it's an 80 to $100 billion a year landed fish catch. That's how much the industry is worldwide. $25 billion, Did I say billion? $100 billion. $25 billion is subsidized. That's crazy in any, in any business. And it's subsidized. It's like 30 but some of those billions go to, to science and safety and all of those things. $25 billion goes to increasing their, their ability to catch more fish, to go out and do the wrong thing even more. If you cut the subsidies, half the boats in the water would be gone. And that's a really good thing. These are state subsidies by other countries yes, that are giving country, their uh, supporting jobs? Exactly. Okay. Uh, and the World Trade, the good news is the World Trade Organization, for the first time ever, it has language in this Doha round. Um, every time I say Doha, I feel so smart, um, just that I know it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Do you know where it is? No. I don't either. Um, yeah. <laughs> busted. Um, I couldn't that, find it you know, For the first time ever, they're willing to cut subsidies. It's tricky because everyone agrees that you have to cut subsidies, but it's not my boats. It's their boats over there. It's his boats. But that would be huge, um, and that's possible. So massive overfishing, destructive, uh, too many boats, and many other things. But at the same time, you have ocean acidification. You have uh, the water temperature changing so that the coral reefs are starting to dissolve. So that's the argument for keeping your fisheries really healthy. Do not fish, you know, just at the barely the margin of, of uh, you know, it's sustainable. You need a big buffer zone because it could collapse. Nine out of the ten big fish that were around when I was a kid mm-hmm. in the 50s, uh, 90% of the tuna, gone. 90% of the sharks, gone. And we should talk sharks, gone. Marlin. Uh, uh, swordfish, uh, king mackerel, gone. So it's not that we're fishing with 10% with all of the fisheries of what we had in the 50s, but it's way, way diminished. So we're being, in this country, pretty good about not overfishing what's left of, you know, this huge amount we had in the 50s. So... Has that reflected in the price? Is that uh, usually something gets that scarce, the price goes up, and that has some impact on consumption or right. makes it more worthwhile to protect it? Uh, yeah. You know what? We move, uh, somebody said this great, I can't remember who's like, we are eating what our grandfathers used to call trash fish. You know, we used to throw, it was like we would never go after that ugly fish that we, we uh, cleverly named Orange Ruffy and then went, ooh, Orange Ruffy, you know. We, so we're eating way down the food chain. And because, we, you know, because you can keep putting something on the plate, it looks to us up here that everything's fine. One of the problems we thought aquaculture was going to be, and will be, perhaps the answer. Salmon farming, big, big, big problem. Somebody told me in Washington State they're getting better at it. But basically, all of our uh, farm salmon comes from Chile, where they grind up three to five pounds of wild fish to make one pound of farm salmon. So we're here going, what's the problem? And in South America and you know, other places in the Southern Hemisphere, the fish are going, 
You know, in the local markets, you can barely find any fish, and they're smaller. So, and there's a huge amount of antibiotics. They're getting better at that. But these are antibiotics, by the way, that we take as last-ditch antibiotics when we get really sick. In the meantime, they've been proliferated into the fish farms to the point where the, by the time the virus, you know, comes to us, it's like, <laughs> you know, big deal. I saw that a long time ago. Ted Danson is co-author of the book Oceana. We're discussing oceans at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, what can consumers do about this at the point of purchase? What, what transparency mechanisms are there to, to inform us what we're eating uh, when we, if people choose to eat fish? Great. And, and this is the kind of the comma. Here comes the good news. Because to get, I have to be careful, to get people's attention, you sometimes harp on the, on the problems. Uh, and this is what I love about Oceana, the book. It, it, it tells you scientifically what's going on, but it empowers you. This is a good news story. This does not have to end up uh, the way we seem to be trending. We can turn it around. Um, and it's hopeful, and it's empowering, and here's one of the things that you can do that will make you feel empowered, which is become a, a smart consumer. Uh, and you wanted, and we're talking about public health here as well. Um, the Bush administration's EPA had one out of six, I think it's now one out of ten women in this country have too much mercury in their system. And if they have childbearing years, to safely give birth to a child without the risk, the risk of neurological damage, that's that's big. That's that's real important. And that comes from, mostly, from the fish that you eat. And it mostly gets into our fish in this country from the coal-burning plants in the Midwest or the chlorine plants that use mercury in the making of a chlorine molecule. Sifts you know, down into the water, gets into the gills of the little fish. It's water-soluble. And by the time you're eating the big fish, the swordfish, the tuna, uh, it has so much mercury in, in it that it's really not good for you. So become... Uh, an informed consumer. You have the great Monterey Bay Aquarium Sea-Watch. It's even better than their cards that you can go online or have an app on your phone, and it'll give you up-to-date what is healthy and okay for you to eat. If you go to the supermarket, ask them, because by law in California, you have to post the FDA list of what's healthy for you to eat. Do it for yourself. Do it for the fishery. Do it for your kids. You're only supposed to have uh, the equivalent of like a can of, of tuna a week at most if you're a woman or a, a, a child. And that's what we used to you know, eat to be healthy, to give our kids the healthy thing. We'd give them tuna. So educate yourself. You have a huge amount of power. Be embarrassed and when you're at a restaurant. Go, sorry, is this farm salmon? And if they say yes, go, ah, sorry. I, if wild salmon, yes, but not farm salmon. Become educated because you have a huge amount of power. The most important thing, and the reason why I wrote the book, the truth is you need to become an international activist. These problems are huge. You can do the consumer thing, and it's really smart and the right thing to do, and it makes you feel empowered. Most of these things are policy uh, issues that are governmental and are worldwide. <clears throat> so how can you, you know, do this in your busy, crazy day? Oh, for me... I have to offer you Oceana, oceana.org. Go online to oceana.org. 
Go to the web, the part where you can become an e-activist, and they're called wave makers in our organization. You punch up, you know, you click a button here and there, and you agree, even without paying any money, to become an e-activist. All of a sudden, something important happens in Chile or Spain or here in this country. We'll send you a blast, and you go, yes, I agree, and I will do this. And it was 60,000 of you who encouraged the West Coast fish, uh, fishing councils to put aside over 140,000 uh, square miles of ocean floor to bottom trawling. No more bottom trawling in these, this sensitive area. And it came because of you. It's so out of sight, out of mind, ocean stuff. 1% of, of all the money raised in this country for environmental causes, 1% goes to marine issues. So when you show up en masse in an email, you literally change policy around the world. And it's the best feeling to not be overwhelmed by headlines and to know that you're doing something about it. Because literally, you will know in your grandchildren or children's lifetime whether you succeeded. And that's cool. That's exciting. That's not overwhelming or depressing. That's fun. That's exciting. So I want to throw that in because we've been talking about booga booga stuff but it really is exciting. Are there, I believe President Bush set aside a huge mean reserve near uh, Hawaii. Was that a good thing? Really? What, what are some of the top areas that you think ought to be preserved that are not yet preserved? Oh, wow. Um, if you could... Yeah, I don't know that I'm, I, I'm, I'm up on that. But so, you know, some people say 10% of the world's oceans need to be set aside. Uh, And I know Oceania is like mapping out Uh uh, all all along the West Coast the areas that are, have importance to import to the fisheries, whether it's because the nurseries, breeding grounds, things that have to be preserved if we want healthy fisheries. And they're mapping them out, and then they will make their reservation, uh, their recommendations. And I know a lot of people are working on this, marine protected areas. just as an example of how effectively that works, um, I love this story. CNN, about two or three months ago, had this story about right. the Kenyan fishermen uh, who had these big grins on their face because the, sh- the boats were like filled with fish. They were almost leaping aboard because the Somalian pirates had so scared away the industrial fleets for about five years in that area that the fish bound back, you know, just overwhelmingly. So I'm... I'm going to try to honor them in the next... But you can, if you want to honor one of them, it's fine. Sorry, yeah. bad joke. Yeah. Bad joke. Yeah. I'm not recommending Somalian pirates, but it, 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 it definitely shows you that, given a chance, fisheries will rebound. Same thing happened in World War II in the North Atlantic. Boom, fisheries, fish stock just exploded. But the fish, uh, I believe, production peaked, you say, in 1988. It's been declining yeah. since. And soon you say that fish production will exceed beef. What's that going to mean? We'll be all vegetarian. That's good. Yeah. We have to become vegetarians. Um, yeah, it's, you know, there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be, there's going to have to be some cutting back. We've, we've, this is the theme of right now. You know, we, we're overdrawn. We're overdrawn in pretty much every part of our life. We are going to have to cut back. Definitely. Do you, how much fish, fish do you eat, and what kind do you eat? Uh, I probably... I went from not eating meat to becoming a vegan, but I'm from L.A., so that lasted like two months. And then, 
uh, I went off to something else. But now I'm, but after I came out of that, I went, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm vegetarian with fish, and I, I love salmon. I love wild salmon. I love the freshest thing that's off the boat locally. is a pretty safe bet. Um, and I loved, I am one of those guys who likes tilapia, and tilapia is one of those great fish that you can farm because it's vegetarian and it's, and it's not that bad for you. Um, so I, but I'm, I'm even cutting back on fish. So I have a little fish, but I love it. And this is about people being able to fish and eat fish forever. This is not save the fishies. This is save the fishermen. It sounds like something that's, that's new to me is that really what you, the fish you eat depends on what that fish eats. And eating yes. vegetarian fish is a lot better than carnivorous fish high up on the food yes. chain. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The best fish I've ever had was sardines about this big in Basque country in uh, Spain, right off the boat, grilled with some olive oil and slapped between two pieces of bread. It was like, ah. And I remember asking the head of the union there, what is your favorite fish? Trying to sound intelligent. He said, whatever's just off the boat. Whatever's the freshest you know, fish is the most delicious. Ted Danson is author of Oceana, and we're discussing the world's oceans. Can I jump in and one. say co-author? Sorry. Co-author, yes. uh, Mike Dorso is a brilliant writer, wonderful writer, um, uh, nominated three times for Pulitzer, and he did this amazing job. Of, of making some of the stuff, you can tell that I ramble. He's incredibly bright, and he immersed himself in this subject, and he's a really great writer. I want to tip my hat to Mike. And there's a lot of visual presentation of information in the, in the, uh, the book that makes it very, very accessible. Um, you said earlier that there's a spiritual dimension, but it's hard to talk about these days. W- why is that? I mean, you write about that your mother was a very spiritual person, and there's a connection to the oceans. Right. So is it not okay to talk about it in the, in the public realm, or does that fall on deaf ears, or is that too squishy, L.A., liberal? Probably a little. It, de- you know, it depends on your audience. I, you know, I, think, I think jobs are, you know, people are hurting so much right now. I think it's the argument about, you know, uh, about jobs is perhaps the most powerful argument you can make, and you can make it. You do the right thing for the oceans. Bobby Kennedy's great line, um, show me a, a subsidy and I'll show you a polluter. If you right. do the right thing for the oceans, you know, you will do the right thing for the economy. It's crazy, you know. So these marine protected areas... But, sorry, but can I jump in? Sure. And the part that I think is so important is faith. The faith that this will happen, that we will indeed succeed in turning our oceans around. Absolutely. Because if you, if you come from overwhelmed and fear, first off, you're probably going to go, oh, Lord, not more, please. Or even if you try to do something about it, but you're coming from fear, I believe that you're not going to probably get that much done. Did I already say this to you? I'm sorry. I've been talking to a lot of people about going to the ocean, go ahead and see a sunset. My wife said, recommended to people, no, to me, to tell people, what should I do? Go to the ocean. Sit there. Remember how much you love it. Have a great seafood dinner. Come from a place of joy. Then pick up the book. Learn what you need to learn. And go about it with a light heart. Because if you go about it angry, sad, and fearful you probably won't get anything done and you'll bail pretty quickly. So that, to me, is part of this. And, no, yeah, it's, a, it's exciting. I mean, the little boy left the room so I can say this. Hey, we're all going to die, so why not, why not go for it? 
you know? I mean, it's like you don't get out of a get-out-of-jail-free card because you saved the oceans, you know? Go for it. Just have fun. Do the best you can. Do it with grace. And this, this book helps, you know, you need to be informed. But don't take it in as a, a booga-booga. Take it in as, a, as a something that will arm you to, to have fun and go get something done. Ted Danson is co-author of Oceana, yes. is our guest here today at, at Climate One. Uh, plastic bags have been talked about a lot in the oceans. We know, hear about these gyres in the Pacific. I took my 10-year-old son to see the launch of the Plastiki here uh, with one of the de Rothschild family. Have, is there any pr- uh, indication that bans on plastic bags are resulting in less plastic bags in the ocean? Do we know yet? I don't, I don't know that. Uh, Ed Begley, Jr., who's my hero, I mean... I talk to talk. This guy is like, he really, literally, his entire life, I don't think he, he has a minus carbon footprint. He does you know. He's green on the inside. He's green on the inside. I once had to give him, introduce him and give him an award someplace. And I, I said, what I like to do and the, on the way here, I took my stretch limo and I drove real close to his bicycle and I splashed him with water. You know, he, he's maddening. He's so perfect. He has a website that addresses this, and he's heavily involved in plastics and that whole thing. I'm not. I don't. All I know is that you have to do it at the source because you can't clean that up. The size of Texas, and it's, and it's soup. You can't clean up the soup. You can get the big stuff, but not the soup. And it, it, plastics don't go away, but they do break into smaller and smaller and smaller little teeny pieces. That The scary thing is that that they, they're small enough now that the, little, the bottom of the food chain is starting to ingest them. So, yeah, be, be the, you know, we have a rule in my house that if, if you forget your cloth bag at the market, you, you're going to buy another cloth bag. My, you should see the trunk of my car. I kind of drive like this. I have so many cloth things. And is that car a limousine or is it a hybrid? It's a, it's a hybrid. It's, no, I, I, I love... I love uh, uh, I'm embarrassed to say it's all Toyota at the moment, but they're all hybrids. And uh, I'm looking forward. Has anyone got the Chevy Volt? We've had people here who own them. We have one owner of a How Chevy Volt in the audience. Ah, see, that's where I'm going next. I have another year, and then I'll go the The plug-in electrics are here. Yeah. Um, speaking of transportation and carbon footprints, uh, ocean transport's one of the most efficient transport in terms of goods and uh, transporting them. Is that a good thing to use more seaborne transport, or is that bad for the ocean? Well, you need to regulate it, which we haven't done so far. Uh, one of the things Oceana and the organization did is it, it criminalized, passed legislation and worked with the European Union, to criminalize these everyday uh, common occurrence. You have, we have photos. You, know, you can see this oil slick behind these, these tankers and, you know, Transports that are people just washing out the ballast of their tanks or washing out their tanks before they get to, uh, you know, to the harbor where they fill up again. So they've criminalized it to the point where the owner and the captain go to jail. I think if you if you were to call all of shipping a country, it's something like 16. It would be the 16th most polluting country in the world. So one of the things we're trying to push for is as soon as you hit the United States economic zone, 200 mile, easy, that you have to cut your speed limit to I don't know what. But by doing it, you would have the same impact that we did with cars during the Carter years when we went down to 55 miles an hour. 
California, I believe, has rules now that within you get to a certain point, you have to change different fuel, burn cleaner fuel right. as you get into right. uh, uh, not the dirty bunker fuel, but a better grade of fuel because of air quality issues. Yeah. Um, so marine transport's okay, but it, but it should be regulated. How about the cruise line industry? Do you take cruises? Uh, they're another source of ocean pollution. Uh, ever since Henry Winkler told me that it was his nightmare to be trapped on a cruise line in the height of his career, you know. Where do you where do you where do you run? Where, where do you hide? So he, you know, his cruise was signing autographs, which yeah. I love to do, and we'll be doing it. So. Um, one of our first things that Oceana did, which was kind of low hanging fruit, but we needed, you know, to get off the boards, was to talk to uh, engage uh, Royal Caribbean. These things are like you know floating cities, and they go to the most beautiful areas in the world. They go to the reefs. They go to the precious places because they're beautiful. And uh, I think I'm getting this right, and we're on TV, so I should be careful, but, and I could be wrong, but I think it was Royal Caribbean that Alaska said, no, don't, don't come in anymore, because they weren't treating their, their sewage completely enough to not be damaging the fjords and the little areas that they were going. So they went off and they, they, uh, they changed over a number of their boats. And then we engaged them and said, wow, great, fantastic. Will you do all of your boats? And they said no. And then we had this campaign. And they now have put $150 million into t- changing over their entire fleet so that their sewage treatment is top of the line. What's sad is we said, great, now can we publicize that? And they said no, you know, because they have an agreement with the other uh, fleets that anyone who does anything good environmentally will not tout it to embarrass the others, you know, which is too bad. Um, so, you know, that's quite tricky. A, that's it's quite tricky. an amazing thing to to, to not yeah. have. A, it's a race to the bottom, or uh, yeah, exactly. not, not a race to the top. Ted Danson is co-author of the new book Oceana, and is our guest at Climate One. Uh, we will now put out a microphone for audience questions. I invite you on this side. We'll form a line back there, and I'll ask one more question while the line line forms. Um, Climate change is driving changes in, in the water cycle. And one of that is there's going to be uh, less water in certain places. A lot of places are looking at desalination. Marin County is looking at it, Monterey. Yeah. Um, uh, it's very expensive. For, as an ocean advocate, how do you look at desalination plants? Not an expert. Sorry. My, incl- my impulse is to say probably not a great idea. You know, it, first off, it's probably done so that you can increase your development along the coastline and have water would be my guess. Uh, yeah? Is that, I mean, people, you all probably know Because you, you need water for growth, and, and yeah. your existing water supplies are, 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 are yeah. de- so declining. Right. So it's kind of dubious that, you know, and I don't know what you do with the salt, and I don't know how much energy and power it takes to, 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 to do that entire process. It so, takes a lot, and, and it does. Yeah. People are concerned about the, yeah. the, the, um, the impact of the, the wastewater going in. Uh, let's go to our audience questions. Brief question, sir. Hi, Mr. Danson. My name is Peter Gisello. First, I'd like to mention that there's 100 great photographs in this book. And so if people want to look at photographs, they should buy your book. My question, my question has to do with leverage and collaboration. Your organization is a special interest group focused on an important issue, but you work or collaborate, I assume, with other organizations that have special interests. How do you collaborate and create that impact of conversation and commitment from the members of government to transform them 
the businesses you mentioned, how do you use that collaboration to transform them? I don't know. Maybe I'm not going to be answering your question, but, I mean, you, you said it. We do. Environmental organizations are pack animals just by nature when you show up. Surf riders there, you know, uh, NRDC, Sierra Club, all of the culprits show up, and we're really, you know, people take credit for things when they're kind of the lead, but they're never alone. They are, you know, they are always showing up with the same groups of people. What I loved about this book for me is, uh, that we point you in the direction, the best place to go for that information. And sometimes we don't do that kind of work because we're campaign-oriented and we don't spread ourselves too thin. But we do point you to other organizations, other books, other websites, so that if you want to dig a little deeper, please go here, please go there. Um, yeah. Next audience question. Thank you. Mr. Danson, J.R. Ellis, I've been an active environmentalist for many years. I'd like to thank you for the work you're doing with the thank oceans. You. I wanted to mention a little plug, too, for uh, the Ford Escape Hybrid. The wife and I went up that inland Alaskan waterway this summer, and we jumped off at Skagway, coincided with three big luxury liners there at the same time, and uh, did a 7,100-mile boogie at 33 miles of the gallon. wasn't too bad when we jumped off at Skagway. But my question had to do with something you mentioned early on. You were talking about the aesthetics of windmills and that kind of thing. I'm an expatriate New Englander, and since the 30s, my dad, who was from the state of Maine, used to talk about this Passamaquoddy project, which was an effort to take advantage of the tides that are up there by the uh, uh, British uh, line there between the provinces. So is your question about that project? Well, it uh, is apparently something that's been gaining steam, especially now that oil is up around 100 bucks a barrel. Right. But uh, the objections, as I understand, have to do with the aesthetics. And you talked about a windmill ruining your view and that kind of thing. And I wondered how you felt when you were speaking about perhaps alternative approaches and something that's still environmentally sound right. about you. something like that possum aquatic thing. So new, yeah. new technologies for en- ocean energy? You know, I'm sorry. I'm not aware of that. I mean, I've heard of it, but I, I, I by no means know that much about that, that industry. But, uh, um, and, you know, I, I hope I didn't mislead you. I, I, I'm happy to see a windmill in front of my... Almost happy. I'm happier, <laughs> I'm happier than, a, you know, an oil well. Uh, um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that particular technology. And as some, I did one of these speeches in Los Angeles, New York, and somebody pointed out, somebody from Europe saying, hey, we got, there are problems with wind that we didn't even know about. But by and large, the problems are, are way less than with, with oil. Um, so nothing is perfect. Creating energy, you will create problems. But you have to kind of, you know, it's much better to see a windmill go, splash and go, whoops, than it is an oil rig. That was pretty stupid to say, but it was fun. Never mind. Go ahead. Next audience question. Hello, I'm Karina, and I'm very happy to see you and proud to say I was an extra in your film, Getting Even with Dad. Nice. And I I miss seeing you on TV and in films. Um, And then I'll get to an environmental question. Are you going to be doing any... Upcoming films or TV? I am. It's okay because the name of the movie is Everybody Loves Whales. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, so, what is? And it's a true story about in Barrow, where the uh, the three gray whales were trapped by the ice, and the whole world 
ground to halt in 1988 and became this cause celeb with the media and Reagan weighed in and she hasn't had her question yet. Anyway, HBO, yes. get cable. I'm okay. there. Go ahead. Um, and your environment question? I'm, I'm very concerned, for, for example, about the Arctic and the polar bears. I spoke last year with um, Jean-Michel Cousteau and he didn't think they're going to survive and there's other right. species. Um, and they're talking about drilling oil there. Can you say something more about that and what are, can you push, you know, we have, we push somebody, against that too? You should address this if you want. You don't have to. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> polar bears? Yeah. Uh, I mean, but Is I mean, your organization well, we're, we're fighting tooth and nail not to, make, not to have any But you went up there and testified drilling. about uh, yeah. when you were film, making this film about. Yeah, I, I did. I went and talked. First, I talked to Pete Slaby. Uh, who's the head of North America, Shell, or something like that. He's way up. Boy, I, I, I walked away feeling seven, like I was talking to my stern father. I was, you know, they're good. They re- I mean, and, and they're smart, and they're bright, and they are, you know, doing what they think they should be doing. Um, uh, but then I, I, yes, then I went, I, I, I said goodbye to him and, and went off and testified, and that was my humbling moment, talking to people who are make everyone in Alaska, you know, has a brother, a cousin, or themselves that are in the oil industry or are benefiting. So it was a real challenge. But we're fighting to keep uh, offshore oil from being drilled in the Arctic. It's just, you know, we've done it with the fishermen. Got it. The fishermen, the fishing councils have agreed not to, you know, with the Arctic ice going back, not to go in there until science uh, has proven how to do it safely. And that's the argument. You know, you don't know how to drill safely. When I went to, to with uh, Pierre Cousteau, mm-hmm. not Pierre, uh, Philippe Cousteau, to testify in 2009 about offshore oil, no more, right. everyone said it's safe. The technology has changed. It is safe, safe, safe. And then, boom, the Gulf. So accidents happen. And if you had an accident up there in the Arctic, it would be almost impossible to clean up. It would be devastating. Sorry. Next question. Um, Thank you very much for what you're doing. Um, I would like to just say, you mentioned about sharks, and I'm a board member of Wild Aid, and I love the conglomeration of all of these wonderful organizations working together. Wild Aid is um, pushing for an international ban on shark finning and working, of course, in California right now. So I just wanted to mention that. I wanted to know if Oceana is working closely with them, which is unbeknownst to me, um, but good for everybody to know. And um, also wanted to say with regards to polar bears that a Center for Biological Diversity based in Arizona has a great program um, legally working on that front. So right. thank you very thank much. You. So Thanks we, for the we work you do. We need to get to sharks and shark finning, yes. Yeah, yes, shark you. finning. Um, uh, we kill 100 million, 80 to 100 million sharks a year in the world. Um, they're the top predators. You wipe out a top predator and there's this ripple effect that you have no idea where it will lead. Um, in North Carolina, the scallop industry collapsed, and they realized that they had wiped out a few years before that all of the sharks in that area that eat the rays that eat the scallops. So the ray population just exploded and devoured and you know, wiped out their, that, that whole industry. So shark finning is you cut the sharks, the fin, you pull up the shark, living, slice off the fins, 
have a stack them in your boat, throw the carcass overboard. The shark obviously can't swim, and there are these horrible pictures of sharks embedded, you know, nose, nose uh, into the sand. Um, but you have to treat it. What now? They're required to land the whole fish. Yes. Right? In this country, uh, there was a big fight, and we were part of it to the, treat it like a man, manager, like a fishery. It wasn't even a fishery. Uh, so treat it like a, a fishery, have quotas, know what's out there so that it can be sustainable, and you have to land the carcass, which all of a sudden makes shark finning not economical. Uh, because if you have to carry the whole you know, carcass, your boat's full very quickly, and off you, you go. And, and it's, it's a cultural thing you know, in China, uh, middle class, you, sh- you, you serve shark fin soup and you're, you've made it. So it's tough to talk cultural stuff, but you can certainly talk being smart about managing it as a fishery. Next question, please. Hi. Uh, so, Connie McNeil, a uh, real fan of yours. Um, I just wanted to mention in passing, um, best pickup line I ever um, succumbed to was... Uh, I remember <laughs> Oh, no. Um, A Navy SEAL down in the Virgin Islands in a bar called the Fallen Angel of the Virgin Islands. And, uh, hi, how are you? Well, I've had a tough day. Been out searching for the shark that killed our commanding officer today. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Yeah. I don't know about a pickup line, but wow. Well, it depends well, on who you're trying. Yeah. Certainly set him apart. Yeah, so it did. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, this may be um, unfair because it's too soon, but every um, so I've been sort of glued to CNN since right. um, everything that's happened in Japan. Anytime any expert is asked, well, okay, the wind is blowing toward the ocean. What's going to be the effect on the ocean or the marine life? And the answer comes back, we're concerned about the people. Well, we are concerned about the people, and I'm sure you are, but what's going to happen? Do we know what the effects will be on the ocean and marine life? I don't know that we do yet. And it's not just too soon because the human tragedy is so large, but it's also... The focus now is totally, you know, on people and on the reactors. And but but you're right. I mean, it's not we're not. It's not that you're worried about the fish. You're worried about the people who eat the fish. Um, but I don't know. Sorry. Um, I think no one knows quite yet. It's too soon to 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 have done anything about it other than address the emergency. But it will be a concern, obviously. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I, I agree with you in the sense that I think aquamarine uh, development will be, you know, the future. Yeah. What develop? What strides have been made? We I mean, keep reading about, you know, don't eat salmon because they're eating their own feces and chopping right. things up. What strides have been made uh, for for the future of uh, farming in, in a healthy way? Right. Um, these. Sorry, it's in the book, but and I'm not very up on everything that's going on, but the. Uh, they have invented closed systems where uh, it, this is mostly for vegetarian fish. I think we should let people keep standing while I answer their question. All of a sudden I feel like, oh, they don't care. They walked away. Um, to answer your question in the back? <laughs> yeah. To answer your question? Sorry, I know. Sorry. Yeah, you can come back and stand. I know. 
You're just a shill for me to speak. You're, we're through. We're through. Uh, sorry. I, what I, my understanding is that there are, and there's a guy in the book who's developed this system, and there are many people working on this, and it's the way we will go, where the systems are closed. But these are vegetarian fish, so that the waste is used you know, to grow the plants that the fish eat, and you can clean it and filter it and do a whole thing. So it doesn't have this environmental impact, and there are no escapes into the wild where you know, they cause problems. I don't know what we're going to do with the carnivorous fish, how you're ever going to make that system work. You know? uh, supposedly in Washington State, they've got the ratio of you only have to grind up one pound of wild fish to make your uh, one pound of salmon. That's still problematic. And the, the antibiotics, you know, because you have all of your fish crowded together. Isn't there something in Japan going on where they're making a, a food for tuna? I'm sure. That, yeah. so, I'm sorry. It's, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot going on because we will have to go in that direction. And that is, that is uh, probably an industry that's just waiting to explode, you know, a science, a technology. Thank you for your Thank question. You. So rather than saying farming is bad, you're saying we're going to need farming. We better... Uh, yeah. reduce its impact, and, and, and advance farming rather than, yes. than, than do away with it. Yeah, salmon farming at the moment, real questionable. Tuna farming, real questionable. You know, because the inclination is, is, to pack, it's, is to create a little pig farm. You know, one-third of what the world catches also gets ground up to feed pigs, chickens, and salmon and tuna. It goes to feeding other animals as opposed to feeding people or other fish to grow into the bigger fish that we like, you know? Real efficient, inefficient way of yeah. Uh, yeah. supplying protein. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Natasha Yankovsky, and I'm a volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center, which oh, is right. right over the Golden Gate Bridge, and we deal with the animals that are suffering the effects of the ocean health, uh, man-made and not. And I wanted to add just one little thing to what your wife tells people to do when they go to the beach. If they could bring one of those... Um, cloth bags with them and pick right. up the garbage. Great. It makes a huge impact yeah. on our animals. Yeah. We see things, you know, when we do necropsies, because we have a, a 30% mortality rate right now, it um, makes a big great. difference in what you see. Yeah, it does. My question for you, after made my plug, and we'd love to have you come visit. It's a great plug. It's a great organization. Yeah, it's the beginning of the elephant seal season. It's open to the entire public, 10 to 5 every day. Um, is Nobody ever talks about overpopulation. I know. It's the core of the problem, it and is. even Al Gore barely touched in his movie. It's the problem. Yeah. And I just wanted to bring that up. No, you're right. You. You're right. And you could go a step further and say poverty is the real problem because poverty is usually what creates the overpopulation, I think. So, yeah, I know. It's, it's big, it's huge. Grab a portion of it and have a ball. Grab a portion of it and do the best you can and have fun. Um, but it's, yeah, it's complicated. But come on, what a great time to be born into this world. You know, if, if growth is about solving problems and bumping into stuff, <laughs> we're going to grow, man. Ted Danson is co-author of the new book, Oceana, is our guest here at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Next question, please. Thank you. Uh, I am from the Philippines, and my country is too close to Japan. And we are now aware that Japan has a problem with the nuclear uh, reactor and a possible uh, nuclear meltdown. What is the, can you give us an insight on the effect of this nuclear radiation to the marine environment? Because we know we, know we don't have any marine boundaries. And what if all things, have, 
it may happen in the United States because we have about 104 nuclear reactors. So can you give an insight on the effect to this nuclear meltdown with the marine environment? I wish I could. I'm sorry. I'm not, uh, I have no expertise in that area at all. I wish I did. Do you have anything to offer? I've just read a little bit that said it's, it's less uh, impactful, that it does break down into some le- relatively benign elements. And again, I'm not qualified here, expert right. here, but quickly, something we certainly need to do something on. We're going to have some programs yeah, here. I quickly ran through with the book, but I could not find anything about... I, we do uh, had a lot of explanation about oil spills, but never explain about effects on nuclear. Well, here, here's an example of... Nuclear, yeah. Right. We, 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 before, it hadn't really come into our... Uh, world of psyche quite when I was writing, when we were writing that. But uh, you're right, we don't. Uh, I I recommend another book. (laughs) Sorry. And it's certainly a fact that many nuclear power plants are close to the ocean because they need lots of water. So there's very much an issue for for your next book. Uh, The two in California, of course, are right on the ocean uh, because they need the... My next book will be about grass. Grass. I don't know why. I just thought it sounded fun. Grass. Sorry. Clearly, you've been reading Michael Pollan. <laughs> Next question, please. Hi, my name is Molly. I'm a freshman at UC Santa Barbara, hey, majoring Molly. in marine biology. I was wondering if your company is familiar with the Riggs to Reef program, or if you're familiar with it, and what is their view on it? I don't know. Okay. Tell me. No, you tell us. What well, is it? basically, uh, most of the oil rigs in California, specifically, this is what I know are going to be decommissioned by 2015 within the next or 10 years or so. And it's, should we just recycle the whole, the entire decommissioned oil rig, or should we cut in half and make it into an a, a artificial reef? Or, and then scientists are debating on whether does the reef actually attract the animals, or is it just because it's there? Or is it actually becoming a reef and sustainable and it's, there's debates on that. What do you, what do you, have you made up any opinions? I just wrote a paper on it, so that's the oh, only reason so I'm cool. familiar with it. So cool. And what was the conclusion? Well, personally, I think it's a great idea to make it natural and make it, and it actually will help fishing in the future. It'll and uh, make the whole ecosystem better, but there's also problems with it politically. Um, oil companies get off. They barely have to pay as much as they do, but the yeah. state ends up getting money because of it, and I was just curious if you were familiar No, with but I'm so glad I bumped into you, and we all are. Thank you so much, and thanks for being a marine biologist. And, Thank you. Yeah, well done. I, I, I used to, uh, when, when we would fight uh, offshore oil drilling, and they would say, what's the big deal? The fish love the platforms. And then years later, I'm, I'm you know, saying, uh, we need a, uh, offshore wind. We need... and. Uh, and I found myself going, and uh, fish love it. <laughs> there you go, using, well, of course, yeah. there was the famous case of uh, the Brent Spar, where an oil rig was, they, Shell wanted to sink an oil rig on the North Sea, and, and environmentalists fought that. And, and so now, now some environmentalists, I believe, have come around and said, well, maybe under certain yeah. situations we could sink these rigs and they might be a net benefit right. compared to the, the alternative. Do we have another, uh, one more audience question, please? We need one, just one more. Oh, good. Thank you. Sorry. He's on a two-and-a-half-week book tour. He hasn't had enough. uh... Hi, Mr. Danson, Mr. Dalton. I'm Elizabeth Wellborn, and I'm from South Louisiana originally. And um, I'm with an organization called For the Bayou. 
and um, uh, Louisiana is losing uh, about a football field size of wetlands uh, every 30 minutes. Wow. Uh, it's pretty astounding, and a lot of people don't know about it. And um, since before the BP spill. And um, I was just wondering, wetlands are so important, and it's where a lot, it's a nursery for uh, most of our marine life, especially down in um, the Gulf, and speak to any involvement that Oceana has in wetland protection and wetland activism. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not really, really up to that. Let's turn this into an educational thing. Why, why are you, we losing a football field? To what? Well, um, uh, there are a, couple, a few main reasons, but uh, the wetlands in Louisiana have started to disappear mainly because of um, the way that the levees have been formed uh, down the Mississippi. That's one of the key uh, problems uh, for transportation because so many ships do come through Louisiana, right. through New Orleans, you know, the port for goods for the United States. And um, uh, in addition also to drilling. And a right. long time ago, before the offshore drills um, the, the big platforms were out there. A lot of it was inshore, and so the canaling through the wetlands um, right. led for a you know path for salt water to just get straight into the wetlands. But you know, I think a lot of people tend to dismiss the Gulf of Mexico as being a place full of beautiful marine life, and it really is. And, and not only that, it, it, it uh, we're one of the biggest seafood providers for the for United the, for States. This country. And um, we, I feel like sometimes we're a little dismissed. Everybody's always looking you're toward oil. the Arctic. You've and... gone to the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree. You're right so. because it's an amazing fishery. I'm sorry that I'm not up to you know to have a great conversation with you because you probably know more than I do. But the Oceana, just so you understand, um, we work with people. We will partner with people who are working on wetland restoration, and uh, because it is incredibly important. But because we're a campaign organization, we pick five, six, seven, whatever, things that we do worldwide, and we try to stick to them and say, we're going to take five, six years, and you can hold us to it, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, so we, we are not uh, spread too thin, and I think it's one of the things that makes us powerful uh, or effective. Uh, but it, sadly, you, some things you wish you could roll your sleeves up and do, we don't do. But we do partner with people, and it's so important, not just for fisheries, but it's also the, the, the barrier to all this devastation when a hurricane comes along. Yeah. You should look to Harry Shear's uh, new film called The Big Uneasy, and it'll talk about you know, why the flooding took place in New Orleans. I mean, that we've, we've dealt with hurricanes for a long time, but because of the buffer of the wetlands no longer yeah. really being there, that's what happened. Yeah. So, thank well you. Well done. Thank you. Thanks very much for t- talking to us. Wetlands are also huge carbon sinks in terms of carbon sequestration, and they're going to be increasingly important to buffer from rising sea level. So wetlands even more important in the future. Our thanks to Ted Danson for his comments today. He's the co-author of the new book, Oceana. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys.